welcome to our conversational podcast. Uh, I always have my hands up because I'm brown. And it's called You Hate to See It. This is the first episode. And just a brief intro for anybody who's just starting to watch. Um, I came up with this plan with two of my friends here, Josh and Moment. Um, we wanted to kind of get some conversations out there about uh, topics that we felt needed to be discussed further. Um, and especially for people who may need to uh, maybe hear more about it or learn more about it, or maybe they have questions, but they don't have the right people in their lives to ask those questions. Uh, so we figured if we did something like this, we could share it with you all and you guys could gain a little bit more of a perspective um, from someone who maybe experiences some of the same issues that are going on in the world. So um, without further ado, today we have Mr. Williams. Uh, Mr. Williams is a principal uh, at Cheyenne High School, I believe, here in West Fargo. And he's been someone who's been very important in my life. Uh, he was my ninth grade world cultures teacher. And at that time, if I'm not mistaken, he was the only African-American uh, teacher in our Far Fargo public school system. Uh, so when I was going through all of the different things, dealing with uh, some racial tension, different types of bullying, uh, particularly, I dealt with a lot of uh, terrorism jokes, being uh, someone from Pakistan. So he was someone who really helped me out, and I thought that he would be really important uh, for this type of conversation here today. He's also a father of two children, um, and he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met on the planet. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Mr. Williams, we're going to start asking you questions. Um, and if you have questions for us, please don't hesitate to ask them because we're far beneath you. <laughs> so the first thing that I wanted to kind of start off with is um, I kind of know your background, but I wanted you to share uh, your background of like where you're from, how you grew up and how you kind of got to the point that you're at today. Got it. Uh, thank you for that warm introduction, Harris. That that means a lot uh, coming from you and hearing uh, about the impact that I had on you. But I'll tell you that you're one of the smartest, smartest dudes that I know. So um, you're way above me. So thank you very much. Uh, a little bit about my background. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Uh, my neighborhood was um, predominantly uh, black. Uh, low socioeconomic status, um, a lot of drugs, a lot of gangs. Um, and with that being said, we didn't have a, a lot of uh, positive role models. Um, and so by the time I made it to eighth grade, I myself had joined a gang and uh, started um, selling drugs and doing uh, things that were very detrimental to um, the health and well-being of my community. Uh, and by the grace of God, I got caught uh, my freshman year. Um, and then my mom had wisdom enough to send me to Detroit, Michigan to live with my dad. And uh, when I made it to Detroit, you know, I got caught up into the same vicious cycle. Um, however, the difference between Detroit and Chicago is um, I had a support system that led me into uh, sports and so I started playing football and was was pretty good at it and um, once again by the grace of God I got the opportunity to earn an academic and athletic scholarship to attend Moorhead State University and that that's my story and how I'm um, currently living in North Dakota now so awesome thank you for that um, Josh I know you had a question about um, Mr. Williams and how he became like a principal. So if you want to go ahead and ask that. Yeah, well, I mean, just after that intro too, I got a couple more too. So you mentioned you had like a support system in Detroit. Um, what was that kind of made up of? Was that like teachers? Was that just a general adults in your community? Was like, who, who helped to make yeah. that difference for you, I think? Uh, the support system um, was like, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I had teachers who saw potential in me and, um, and, they, they brought that out, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was a good writer, but I never knew I was a good writer, but I had a English teacher who just, Mrs. Ford, who, I mean, she praised me up and down and, and pointed me in the right direction. Um, and she was one of those individuals that you didn't want to let down. 
And uh, also I had family members. Uh, my uncle, uh, Jerry, was in Detroit and he was very instrumental in my life. And he was the one that guided me into sports and just saying that you need to just be productive with your life. And yeah. when I made it on the football team, um, most of the guys who were on the football team were all talking about going to college and doing something after high school. And it's, it's like, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't want to be that guy that keeps coming back to high school two, three years after I've graduated. And so uh, just hanging around productive, positive uh, people help help uh, change my trajectory in life, so to say. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I guess just once you got to Fargo, so you chose education then? So like it, no, um, I actually chose political science as okay. um as my major and when I was going through the coursework um, I met one professor who was um, well regarded on campus however I, I thought he was kind of um, a jerk for lack of better terms and he um, it was it was during the um, uh, 9-11 uh, Horace had talked a little bit about the terrorism jokes but it was during that time and uh, we were having a conversation in my um, international relations class. And I had spoke up about a topic and um, this professor just berated me in front of the entire class. And I was the only black student in class. Yeah. And uh, I just, it was just, I just said, you know what, if, if going into this major is gonna make me like him, then I don't want any part of it. And so I had all of these social studies credits and it's like, well, what do you do with that? So my advisor at the time recommended that I look into being a teacher and, and that was the best decision that I ever made. So, yeah. All right. Cool. And then as a teacher, like, especially in the Fargo area, it sounds like being the only um, black um, educator around the area, was there any specific obstacles you ran into there from administrative just to like, or just in handling classes and all that stuff? Um, you know, it, it's funny that you, you posed that question. I remember my First uh, year at, at Fargo North, and that's where I had the opportunity to teach Horace, um, I had a, a black girl in my classroom. And, you know, I had pretty, some students would say that I was one of the cool teachers or whatever, but I still had high standards and expectations for all of my <laughs> students. Yeah. And so I had this one black girl in class, and uh, I wouldn't let her off the hook. Like, you have to turn in your work. You have to do this and do that. And her mom called me and uh, told me that I was racist towards her. Um, <laughs> because of the way I was treating her. But little did she know that I was also black. And yeah. so um, I dealt with that a, a number of times uh, as a teacher. And even as a, as a principal, um, I've been accused of uh, favoring minority students more than um, white students. But, you know, I'm married to a white woman. <laughs> so that, that, um, that argument kind of fails um, when, when they bring it up. So. So I have a question on that specific statement, and I don't think I know the answer, but so I've, I've felt that a little bit too. So I, as a store director uh, at Target, I'm, I'm a leader of people, um, obviously, along with the business. And that comment of like, hey, I, you know, are you favoring uh, minorities and people of color? Um, whether or not that it's true for either of us, that fact in, in itself, is that wrong to do because if you think about like minority and people and uh or uh, african-americans they it's proven right we have proof that that they stand on different levels from from the get-go like their race is uh, uh there's a huge gap in terms of where they start off whether it's financially uh socially you know i mean so it's i mean i don't necessarily think it that is a bad thing in itself to favor or prioritize minorities and people of color i just what are your <laughs> Oh, I, I, I agree. I don't I don't think there's a, an issue with that. But I, you know, I try to live by the golden rule to treat uh, people the way I want to be treated. But um, I'll give you an example on um, how I how it was perceived that I tended to favor uh, minority students more so than white students in certain situations. My first year as a principal, um, I just logged and tracked all of the data regarding discipline. And um, we had less than 10% of our stu overall student population that were comprised of black students. But they were making up over 60% of the office referrals. And that doesn't make sense. And so 
um, when you bring that to the to the when I brought that to the staff, like why is this? You have 10% of the population that's accounting for over half of all discipline issues in the school. There's a huge problem there, and so um, the next couple of years, uh, the next subsequent years. I made it a point to look for alternative ways to deal with students of color who in, who got into issues that, you know, instead of suspending them, well, what can we do? Can we keep them in school? Can we uh, do an in-school suspension? Can we set them up with a mentor or something like that? Because, I mean, the numbers don't lie. <laughs> and so if I was being accused of favoring minority students or black students in that light, I'm okay with that. I'll take it. So. Is there anything that you found particularly effective in helping them as far as was finding like a mentor, just being, being a good role model on yourself? Or? I would say, you know, um, you know, this is, this was my last year at, uh, at the school that I'm currently at. And I had so many letters written from parents and students, uh, black students and black parents that just said being visible meant the world to them. And so um, one of my goals is I, you know, I currently have my superintendent's license because I want to eventually make my way back to the inner city. But if you look in Fargo, where our student population isn't reflected in our staff. And so I think it's imperative that our students can see themselves represented in positions of authority, whether that's a teacher, a principal, what have you. Most of the uh, minority staff members we have, they are support staff their janitors or their cooks. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I just think that we need to see ourselves in, in, in different positions of authority. So Yeah, I think I, I mean yeah, I don't know the case for all the other guys, but I know if like I think a majority of us all grew up in primarily white like areas <laughs> and schools. And I think that was a similar thing. I mean we're all Asian so there's I mean my mom was a like a lunch lady for a bit. So yep. and I, I know that's kind of I don't really can't really think of many other like diverse people in different positions at the school as well but i don't know what you guys experiences like that yeah and I, I i second like the importance of that um i know like i stated in the beginning i know that me being able to see like someone like mr williams even though mr williams is not like he's not pakistani and i'm not black but knowing that there's someone else that gets it or someone else that like just knows that you're struggling in a way that other people aren't noticing. It's not something that needs to be spoken. It's more of just something that needs to be attended to. And a lot of times uh, I feel whether it's kids, uh, whether it's patients, whether it's just, you know, your average uh, civilian on the street, um, just taking notice of those things of being aware of those things makes such a huge difference. Uh, the minute that you like reach out to somebody, uh, I know that in like the apartment building I'm living in now, like there's quite a few uh, African Americans uh, who it almost seems like sometimes they walk around on like eggshells around certain people. Like you'll say hi to them and they'll kind of hesitate uh, just because of the climate of like the country. And I've tried to make like a conscious effort to just go and say hello, introduce myself. You know, tell them who I am and you can see like that bit of relief that like okay it's not it's not like that there's someone here if they're opening the door there's not a reason for why they're not going to ask me if I live here it's just they're here and they get it and so I think that's a really important thing that like you you've pointed out and I know Moman was about to say something just now but I mean, I, I agree. I mean, representation is huge. I mean, for me at, at Target, I work for a big corporation. And, and whenever I find someone who, if, if I'm getting an email thread and it's an Arabic name, I'm like, oh, is he Muslim? Like, uh, you know, I, and I gravitate towards that. Or if I'm in a conference call, I was in a diversity call on uh, last Friday and re regarding to the events of George Floyd and I it was a zoom call across the company and I saw district store directors group vice presidents who were African-American and Muslim and I was like wow like and I sent them an email like just because like hey I just because you are in your position and you are who you are that means so much to me and I 100% agree that like representation matters and that's why like I like 
like I, I have a question for you, Mr. Williams. So as a leader of people, um, I guess, especially now in the climate we have post George Floyd, but even prior to that, like what do you think is your responsibility as a leader of people when it comes to recognizing diversity, challenging diversity, encouraging diversity, or just having these tough conversations that now it seems like everyone is having, um, but maybe, you know, in some spaces they aren't or they weren't prior. Oh, that's a deep question, man. <laughs> wow. I brought um, the right people, Mr. Williams. <laughs> no, right. I would say uh, that uh, my responsibility is, number one, uh, is model um, the behaviors that I want to see displayed in, in my staff. And so once again, I always go back to that golden rule of treating people the way I want to be treated. Um, and also I, I look at like my, my own hiring practices at the building level. Um, I, I, I strive to, to hire uh, non-white uh, staff members um, for all positions. Now the, the, it's hard in Fargo because for the most part, black people don't want to move here to teach. I mean, it's cold in the wintertime, man. So that recruitment of uh, black teachers is very hard. Uh, but whether it's hiring women, you know, um, or people with disabilities, I, I try to model that. Like, we're, we're all created uh, equal in the eyes of God. Um, and, and also, I would say um, just being compassionate. And what I do... Um, I tell stories. I think people learn a lot through stories. And so whether that's my story um, or whether that's having a student tell their story or a parent tell their stories, I think that's very impactful for our staff. So along with data, because you, you also have to have data because you have those people who are geared towards numbers. And if you have the numbers to back it up with the story, I think that's very impactful. So. And just to build off of that, so for people like me, Josh, and Momin, and others who are striving to be like leaders in our community and help kind of push that change and change that narrative, what are some things like being now in a leadership position yourself for a number of years, what are some things that you would suggest that we do or uh maybe have us keep an eye on so that we can help promote this change as the years goes on because i know that we don't want this to be like a two-week trend we like actually want to see change uh and equality and, and justice for people so what are some of your recommendations i think it depends on what type of leader you want to be um are you thinking like of a, a community leader type sort or if you're thinking about being a leader at for your organizations, like moment you reaching out to your uh, fellow colleagues and sending that email, that was powerful. Um, and I would say that when those types of opportunities uh, arise at, at your place of work or your place of worship or your community, step up, you know, don't be afraid. And that's what I've done. Um, you know, I'm not a community leader, but I did have someone reach out to me uh, earlier this week to ask for me to run for uh, city to be a city commissioner in West Fargo. And I'm thinking about that. So as opportunities come up, then I, I you know, if it's good for my family, it's, if it's good for the overall public, then I'll, I'll do it, so. I think adding on to that too is when we, we like when we see negative behavior too, we should probably yep. try and call it out as well. Exactly. So I had a, a question also again, like building off of that, going a little bit further back. So you had talked about like the way you grew up and uh, how like at a young age, you got involved in some things that, you know, you shouldn't have gotten involved in. And that seems to be like a very common story with a lot of people who come from those types of neighborhoods. What, if, if those people are listening right now, which we hope that some of those people will be, what are some things that you would want to say to like a younger version of yourself or some of those kids who they want to do something else, but they're kind of stuck in a, a sticky situation? Oh, man, that's, that's, a, what kind of questions are these, man? Those are deep <laughs> questions. What, what, what would I tell someone? Um, man, hope. I believe in hope. Um, but, Horace, I'll be honest with you, man. Um, 
it's hard to love your neighbor when you're hungry. Um, meaning that I can preach to people about, hey, man, you got to do this, you got to do that. But if their reality is poverty, if their reality is drugs and gangs, how do you get a person to, to look beyond that? Um, education is the, is the number one tool besides God, of course, that can change someone's life. And so what I would tell a younger me is, man, take advantage of your education while you can. Um, because that's the way out unless you're a good basketball player, a good football player or whatever, the way to make it out of the hood is to take advantage of your education. I guess you're going back to the role models thing too, right? That's a lot of, a lot of role models is really focusing on sports maybe, yep. and then like kind of putting the education on the wayside because yep. the education systems failed them or it just doesn't, they don't really see relevance because they don't have role models in that space. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, one of the things that got me out were those that support system, which were my role models. Um, but that's why I want to go back to the inner city um, to be a role model. I think so many of our prominent black, non-white uh, individuals make it out, but we never go back. Uh, and it's easy to give lip service to uh, tell people what they should and shouldn't be doing. But unless we're actually in the community, helping them to make it out, then I don't think we really have a leg to stand on, so. Yeah, I think it comes back to that visibility thing, right? Yep, yep. And then I guess, and I kind of had a question too, so as far as, Paris uh, mentioned you're a father too, and as far as like trying to like bring this to the light of like future generations and stuff like that, I think an important thing for me, I've always had in my life is trying to be, I don't have kids right now, but trying to be a man that I think my kids would respect and that they, they can look up to trying to be an example for them just to start off. And like, when you think about just any situation, how do you want, how do you want your kids to remember this? Or you remember you by this in, in this moment? Is there anything for your kids that you've like tried to instill as far as like being a good role model? And I guess just being, I mean, sounds like just being actively involved currently is probably a good like, uh, example, but is there anything for you as far as like raising your kids, especially right now to probably a fairly scary environment as, on top of things, is, is there, are the lessons that you're trying to teach them in this moment or just in general that you try to pass on? Well, um, deep, I love these questions, man. Um, what we do, uh, we like with everything that's been currently going on, um, we don't hide it from our kids. My wife and I, and I, and I applaud my wife for that, who's white and she tries her best to sympathize and empathize with what's going on. Um, but we expose our kids to those uh, to those events. Uh, hopefully, they they won't be traumatized by them, and we let them know that you are black. <clears throat> Granted, yeah, they're they're biracial kids, but in the eyes of society, they are black. And we talk about how to behave with the police if you know when they get to a certain age and they get pulled over. Uh, we talk about how to deal with kids who are going to make comments about your hair, about your skin, and. Um, it, once again, it goes back to that, you know, golden rule, treat people the way they want to be treated. However, never, never back away. Like if someone has an issue with you, that's their issue. Uh, if they put their hands on you, I know this doesn't sound right coming from an educator, but if someone <laughs> puts, puts their hands on you, you better fight back. <laughs> and that's just yeah. part of how I was brought up. Um, but we, we, we try to educate our kids as best as possible. And but once again, uh, we talk about it, then two minutes later, they want to go play Fortnite, so. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. back, all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I so I'm I'm half Filipino and half white, so, like, uh -huh. that bi biracial thing's always been a bit of a struggle for me, as far as, like, finding my identity, because I grew up in a primarily white area, um, small town just outside of the cities, actually, about an hour from the cities, um, population of, like, my graduating class is, like, the first out of, like, 200 or something like that or first over 200. And then like, I'm not deeply connected with my Asian side either, but growing up there, I mean, I would always get, you know, was, when people would see my dad for the first time, they would be like, but he's white. Right. I get stuff like that. And just trying to like mix, being biracial is trying to figure out where you fit in can be kind of hard, I think. But like you said, having, having role models and trying to figure out who to identify with can be kind of difficult, but yeah. And you, but you do get to pick too. Like I, growing up, I mean, Maybe it was racist, maybe it wasn't, but I was just known as Asian. So like, I, but for me, luck, luckily being the stereotypes against Asians are kind of weak as far as like how I viewed them. So I was, it was just something that I owned. 
because it made me different and I, I liked that way. But yeah, this is, especially right now too, is like trying to figure out how to reconcile my my white half for like the culturally from my Asian half and trying to like bridge those two has been kind of interesting to try to do. But mm -hmm. and yeah, I don't know you try to handle it with your kids, but yeah. Man, I gotta say, you three are lucky. Like, Momin distinctly looks Pakistani. You just look Asian. Yeah, Mr. Williams, That's black. Right. Like, everybody I met was like, "Are you Spanish? Are you this? Yeah. Are you that?" I, I do like, get that. I mean, being, being I Filipino, couldn't even but... find my identity. Like, I was having an identity crisis every time someone met me. It was terrible. Yeah. Um, say, yeah. No, like if I could grow facial hair, people would be like, oh, that's, that's been a game changer for me. Being able to grow facial hair changed my life. Like everybody's like, well, the face doesn't look like it's from there, but the beard looks like it's from there. Well, at, at 27, I finally got a mustache coming in. So. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> 30. <laughs> oh, boy. Josh, um, so question for you. So when you talk about like owning your identity, but then also like, uh having that conflicting identity between being white and being asian how is that how has that empowered you or how has that been stressful for you because I, I it could be both i don't know if it is both i, th I think it's been more stressful I, I think the dangerous part of it is that it's led me to be indifferent because i don't feel like i can relate like i don't feel i'm justified in like relating strongly to one side or the other because i can't i haven't really been able to experience that i guess like i I mean, my mom's from straight from the Philippines, so I have like that sort of an immigrants mentality. But like my dad's white from here, from the Midwest, all that stuff. So I, yeah, I think, I mean, just with recent events too, I realized I need to like be more involved as a citizen because it, it's definitely led me down a road of being just indifferent because I couldn't really relate to either side that much. But yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm not sure. It's been, yeah, I, I've always, I've, I've just always liked being Asian, but, and then that's the thing is like, I, I'm I'm always like being Asian, but then I'm if a part of me it's weird because I'm trying to like not be white or like forget that I'm white or that I'm reminded of it, and then it just kind of brings guilt. But yeah. The reason I ask is um, I had the conversation with one of my friends uh, separately, and I I grew up in a very white high school, like elementary school, middle school, high school, Rochester, Minnesota, very white college, uh, North Dakota State and Winona State, very white. And I purposely did not be, did not show or display or was very vocal about my differences either as a Muslim or as a, as a Pakistani on purpose because I wanted to, it started in high school and middle school with me wanting to fit in. But then it, it was me realizing that, hey, people don't really want to talk about you being different. They want to, they want you to be as close to them as possible. And for me, that was I don't know what this means, but quote unquote acting white or just trying to assimilate as much as I could. And I've, I've really held that, that throughout my life uh, up until I think when I started my career. But even then, I was very conscious about separating who I am versus what I am at work. And I tried to be as professional as possible just so that I could A, either avoid these uncomfortable conversations, these microaggressions, or B, just so I just could get through work and I had to deal with it. But then just recently with, with George Floyd being murdered, I, I started to be very vocal on my personal platforms to everyone, not just specific people, which I haven't really done before. So before I, I have my group of my, my close Muslim friends, my close Pakistani friends, my close uh, Oromo African friends who I will indulge with them, but I don't indulge in the same way I do with my white friends, right? It's a different pers uh, side of me that I share. And I think for the first time I shared openly, I think so th through, social, through social media with everyone, this, this concern, this urgency, uh, and I shared the same story to an effect on my social media. And it was surprising for a lot of my uh, white peers, uh, white colleagues and white friends who I still maintain, but I've never expressed this to them. Just like this, 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 the sentiment that everyone else is sharing that, hey, like this is not, A, not okay. And it's just sharing a little bit about my story. And I had a lot of people reach out to me saying that like, uh, and I, this was a general statement saying, hey, like I hope I was never racist to you. Um, and kind of like, uh, well, there was a, uh, false apologies or crocodile tears, but like, it was really like eye-opening for me to like how dangerous or potentially harming the sense of assimilation can be for a, a person of color 
or a minority because I was what I'm 27 years old and I for a large part of my life didn't feel like it was important to me to be vocal about how I was different that I'm proud that I'm different with everyone not just the people who look like me um, and that's why I asked that question because it I, I look back on it and um, it's I don't know how I feel about it yet because I see people who are of my skin color and of my background who they have such a hard time communicating with the, with the majority. They don't know how to talk to white people. Uh, and it's, it makes them, it, it, it's, it's tough for them to engage in society because they don't know how to. But then I also have see the other side of it like myself where you can get lost in it sometimes and you lose your identity or you become ashamed of who you are. So, uh, um, that's, I think that's why I asked that question. I'm just genuinely curious to see like how. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, my, my experience too, I mean, like with you guys being of Muslim background and then with Vince being um, black, like your, your like stereotypes are different than the ones that are going to come on me too. But like, and the, the weird thing with my school too is like being Asian wasn't like a bad, it wasn't really viewed as a bad thing. It was just generic Asian too, right? So it's not like no one was specifically, I mean, a lot of people make like random Filipino jokes sounding like jalapeno or something like that. But like, to me, those ones were, they were kind of like, they weren't very clever. So I really didn't care about them that much. <laughs> but like, yeah, like if you're going to roast me, at least be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out too. I mean, it's like, again, too, I just don't, a lot of the times I just don't feel comfortable speaking to an experience that I really don't feel like I've lived. Um, Especially because, yeah, like you were saying too, like I definitely feel like I probably was more assimilated just being, I mean, I, my mom came to the States. I have some aunts that are in the States, aunts that are in Europe, but a majority of my Filipino side is still in the Philippines. And I really only got to see them once after college, like a few years ago. And that was, I mean, that was the most, I mean, just being there was really, really nice and getting that cultural perspective. But yet, even then, even there, I still felt like an outsider because I, one, I couldn't speak the language and just like the customs and stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of that too. We're just feeling like an outsider, even within your own group. It can be kind of tough, but yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out too, but. Yeah, I have yeah, a couple to, of questions. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Harris. Oh, I was just gonna frame this because I think it's a really huge like topic and it's one that we could discuss for hours and hours, but I think the important framework of what Moment and Josh just displayed is that there's a lot more to someone who comes from a multicultural background that includes African-Americans, basically anyone in the US uh, or Canada uh, who isn't of like white descent, that there's a lot more going on than you can actually see. Like a lot of people are living this uh, almost like a double agent life where I know that for me, when I went home, I'm speaking Urdu with my parents and it's basically like mini Pakistan in the house. The rules are different. The food is different. The way of talking is different. Uh, the way of parenting is different. Uh, everything is just different in the house. But then the minute I step outside and I have to go to Mr. Williams' classroom, I got to act a completely different way. And everyone around me has no idea that you're dealing with that. And for me, whether it's lucky or unlucky, I got stuck in North Dakota and between college and med school, I worked in the hospital like for two or two and a half years. And in that experience, that's what got unleashed or unlocked was the ability to realize that like being different or being from a different culture, like there is a point where you can just go ahead and just be yourself at all times. But you have to be comfortable enough with yourself to do that. Like You'll see a lot of uh, parents, and I know uh, for some of my African-American friends, their parents kind of act the same way my parents do, where it's more about survival than it is thriving. Like they just want to see us get out into the world and be successful. My dad is never going to put out in a public space what is actually going through his mind because his mind is always in survival mode, that I don't want to do anything to jeopardize you know, what could happen for my son or my wife. Whereas we growing up here, we have the privilege, if you will, to even try and suffer with this identity crisis. And then when we get through it, we have the audacity to speak out about it. And though that's really what's important here is for anybody who's listening and they feel like 
man, I got to act one way when I'm with my buddies. I got to act another way when I'm at school. If a cop pulls me over, I got to act different than, you know, like Jack Smith, because my name is Haris Ali. Like, those are all things that you're not alone in facing. And it's important for those people to hear that and see that. So it was, it's really cool to see you guys do that exchange. Well, I, I, I want to follow up with that. You know, um, at, at your place of, of work, um, do you feel like there's a spotlight put on you because of your ethnicity? Like that everyone is watching you. And does that add pressure onto how you behave in and out of that setting? I'll, I'll start uh, 100%. Um, I was recently promoted to my role about a year ago, and the first couple of things that were said were, well, you know, you're diverse, or like, or, or like, no wonder, like, of course you're in a promoted moment. Like, Gotta get the quota. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the first things I heard. And then um, even when I first started working, just internally, I felt like I had to work twice as hard and always had my head on a swivel because... I, I stand out more, whether it's what I say, how I say it, who I am, my name, um, 100%, I feel like. Um, and then in, in in another light, it's it's oftentimes could be like pa uh, patronizing too. Uh, like whether, whether it's someone saying like, hey, how do you say thanks in your language? Or uh, wow, your name, that's so interesting. Or like, where are you, those where are you from questions? Those are um, or any any other one of the many many microaggressions. It's it's on both levels. Like, oh, I think I yes, one hundred percent do feel. Different. Yeah, uh, on top of that too, right? They can like they can kind of like downplay your accomplishments or like so like yeah, you got this because you were diverse or like any of your like, but they totally ignore the hard work that you're already doing and like the reason that you deserved it in the first place. Right. You know, I I struggle um, with that as well. Um, you know, back in college, go out with my friends, you know, go to a, a bar or something like that and have a good time. And But uh, every, once I entered into, like, actually being a teacher, um, I just felt like everyone was waiting. For, and, and this was, you know, I, I, probably something I, I put on myself, but I was just thinking that everyone is waiting for me to fail. And so if that's the case, then I need to remove myself from certain situations. So don't go out. Uh, and now that I'm a principal, it's like, okay, um, now I got to make sure I drive the speed limit. I got to make sure I watch what I say and what I put on social media because I, I just feel like everyone is watching me. And um, maybe I'm putting pressure on myself, but I just think that there are so many people in our in our shoes that do the same thing. So just how do you deal with that? Yeah, I'm 100% I'm with moment on all of the the work stuff like when i was working and even like in med school now like there's you know i go to med school here at, at und uh, in north dakota so it's a smaller class we don't have a bunch of diversity and it can be like really tricky like you do put that on yourself because you don't want to be the headline because it's it's really that simple sometimes like if i mess up someone's going to say something about it and it's going to become a big deal and I could lose my job. But if someone else of a lighter complexion does it, they may not even really sweat it. And I can't as somebody, as a person who's not white, take that risk. And I think a lot of my uh, white colleagues, especially when I was working, they didn't realize that early on, but as time went on and I spent more time around them and they saw my work ethic or they saw the way that I just handled certain situations, there starts to become like a bigger understanding of like this person really is like walking on eggshells or he's really like guarded at times. Like I can be anybody who knows me knows that I can be really funny. I can be outgoing. <laughs> uh, there's times where I don't shut humble. up. Like at universal, <laughs> I, can be right there, yeah. I can be really humble. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, like there's always a part of me if I'm in a certain group or I'm in a certain workplace or a certain environment that I just kind of I lock up until I know that, all right, these are people that I can be a little bit more open with. And that's exactly the reason why, like you don't want to deal with, you know, the where are you from questions all the time. And sometimes people ask it out of like genuine curiosity because they just don't know. 
but there is like a, I try to explain it to people like there's a way of asking, you know, like context is everything and timing is everything. If you want to know where I'm from, then like, don't just come up to me and be like, Hey, where are you from? Like, yeah. I don't know who you are. You didn't tell me your name. You didn't tell me where you were from. Mm. Like, why, why do I need to tell you where I'm from all of a sudden? If you're genuinely curious though, like introduce yourself, tell me who you are. Tell me where you're from. Tell me why you're asking. If you tell me you're curious, it's not going to be the end of the world. I'm not going to all of a sudden be like, oh, they don't know something. It's like, mm -hmm. no, it's okay. Not everybody knows everything. So that's kind of my feeling on how it worked for me when I was at work or how I'm at school. Mr. Yeah. Williams, in answer to your question, um, like how do you cope with it? I think for me, I think it's like this, right? This is how I cope with it. Like talking to other people who are of different ethnic backgrounds and who are diverse or at my workplace, it's uh, having partners who I know I can confide in, whether it's a, a mentor or a peer who, I, who is also experiencing that similar experience just to have that sounding board. Um, and just I, ever since I think the sophomore year of, high, of college, I purposely introduced people in my life who were of different uh, mindsets, uh, different backgrounds, different skin colors, different religions on purpose knowing that like my life has been enriched by those different perspectives and those are people that I can rely on because they experience those different perspectives and I am constantly trying to chase that in every situation that I'm in whether it's a uh, personal uh, experience a religious experience a work experience whatever whatever I think it's important to get that diversity not only in thought but in actual uh, practice as well yeah I I agree with all of that. And on top of that, I also cope with it by trying to find people who have open ears that are maybe willing to learn. Because in, in my head, when I'm going through those situations, sometimes I, if I, I feel like if I can teach one person what it is that is going through my head, that maybe that one person will understand and then they can pass it on to somebody else. And it, it may not be someone else that I know, but it may be someone that, you know, they deal with another person who's dealing with the same situation and maybe then they'll be proactive and they'll reach out and, you know, they talk to me, they saw my situation then they see moment in his and they go to moment and they say, Hey man, like I had a friend who went through something similar. I just want to know if this is what you're feeling and having that level of comfort. So for me, uh, and it, and it's funny because we have an educator, educating them on that situation to me is a way of coping because I know that I can talk to any of you at any time about these things and it's therapeutic but on top of that like I want to spread that so that mm -hmm. people understand why I need the therapy in the first place Mr. Williams like taking notes he's like oh, yeah my I am I am taking notes <laughs> See, I, educator educator at his finest um, uh, Mr. Williams, I have a question for you. So as, as an educator or a leader of educators, what, given the current climate of American society and the, the fact that we have people who cannot talk to other people who are different than them, that that is, a, that is an issue right now, what is your role or the education system's role in helping be a resource for this? Maybe not solving it, but like helping. Well, I, I think it's um, it's twofold. Number one, I think our teachers need, and when I say teachers, I mean the entire staff need cultural um, responsive training on how to work with uh, different cultures or cultures that may be different than their own. Um, once again, like I'm the I'm the only black principal in North Dakota, the only one. Um, and my staff is, we don't have, I think we have one uh, black, black music teacher at Cheyenne High School. Uh, but for the most part, it's a predominantly white uh, staff. And so we need to train them on how to work with other cultures. And the second part of it is partnering with our families, inviting families into the building and building those relationships and those connections to show them that, hey, we're all in this together, that I'm no better than you, you're no better than me. And together we can do great things. Um, and so that's that's going to be my my mission going into this next year is uh, training staff and, and 
bringing parents into the building. So, are there any obstacles to that that you face as far as like trying to set up trainings like that, or is it just trying well, to find what, the right people to act as trainers, or like to set up those programs? Is there any? Yeah. Well, will the state will the state is currently working on a plan for that. Uh, we have mandatory like uh, trauma training, suicide training, uh, cultural responsive responsive training. And as a building, I get to pick when we do that. Um, so I don't think there would be any problems problems with that. However, with COVID, everything is done virtually now. So that may be the only uh, barrier. And in terms of bringing parents into the building, I just think that it depends on their schedule or what works for them. So but mm -hmm. giving them mul multiple opportunities to come in, I think that will help to alleviate some of those issues. So. Do you think there's a responsibility on the, the teachers, the staff, or yourself, or the education system to provide uh, understanding or the, the skills to be able to understand racism, to understand how to talk to people of different backgrounds? Because I don't necessarily know if when I went to middle school or high school, I got a good foundation of that. I think the, what I my biggest learning was from me, myself, interacting with different people. Yep. Yeah, I think, uh, yes. I, I think they, everyone should be taught on, on that. Most teachers will say, I love all of my kids. I don't see color. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> you don't see color. <laughs> you, you need to see color. Um, you, you, black kids, uh, and, and this, this may be just, I, I don't want to stereotype or anything like that, but I believe that black kids learn differently than white kids. And so you need to look for ways to provide hands-on education for those kids um, and, and not just assign everyone some blank slate on, hey, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. No, people don't learn the same. Coaches, some coaches don't learn the same. And I think teachers need to become more aware of that. So it's my job as a, as a leader to get them that training. So, but yes, they need to learn it. I think, I think that's a really like, it's a really interesting, but like a really important thing that you just said about like cultures learning different. Cause that is definitely a thing, like based on where you're from, how your parents have interacted, what kind of like education level they had. I know I always used to joke around with my uh, ESL, English as a second language uh, instructor that like the older I got and I got a better command of the language, I said that we should just have education as a second language because there was so many things that like there was times where I wish I could just throw my mom like in like a, in an education room oh, because oh, that's, like, where that's where you're going with it no. yeah <laughs> I, there's a reason so because Mr. Williams brought up parents and I think having the parents like there's a lot of parents from different cultural backgrounds whether they know English or not whether they're from the inner city or a different country like for example coming out here it's a totally different world trying to get educated in Fargo, North Dakota than it would be like the inner city Chicago or like some borough in New York. Like they're completely different worlds. There's totally different cultural diversity there. And I think it's really important that you mention that we need to specify the type of education that we're delivering. And part of that kind of coming back to representation, which we've talked quite a bit about, like I always think back to the story of my own parents when they found out that we were going to go to the school and we were going to visit a uh, Mr. Williams. And I, I like, this is one of my favorite stories in my life. Like my, my, I think it's pretty sure it was my dad was with me. We walk into the school, we come in, we're looking for Mr. Williams. Now I know Mr. Williams is black. My dad does not know Mr. Williams is black. And Williams is not always perceived as, you know, like a, like a white or black or different color name. So we get into the room, my dad sees Mr. Williams and he doesn't have like a response because my dad is, he's Pakistani and brown parents don't have responses. So <laughs> he walks in, he shakes his hand, they have a meeting, they go over the fact that I never shut up. And then we leave and we're in the car and my dad just takes like this sigh of relief. And I just asked my dad, like, what was that for? And my dad just says, if you do something wrong, I know somebody's gonna whoop you at school. <laughs> and, and that's that's strictly an education system thing right like where, where my parents came from the way my dad grew up the way their culture is that's like completely acceptable and that's like their way of thinking that 
he didn't mean physically that yeah. Mr. Williams was going to beat up on me, but he knew that the same way Mr. Williams was talking about that African-American girl, like keeping her accountable, how some parents may be like, oh, like Mr. Williams is being racist. My dad was on the complete other side. He's like, this guy is going to be just like how I think that uh-huh. he's not going to let this kid slack. If he talks too much, he's going to tell him to be quiet. If he's late, he's going to tell him to be early is to be on time. To be on time is to be late. To be late is to be forgotten. Uh, I still remember that. It's etched in my head. Like those sorts of things only happen when you have those diverse educators and you have people who have point of views that can relate to the people in their classrooms. And so I couldn't agree more about people who say that they don't see color, you know, they're fair to everyone. No, if you don't see color, grab some glasses or go see a doctor. Like you need to see this color. It makes all the difference in the world to identify where people are from, what they need, how they talk, how they walk. These are all important things. So, I mean, I, I, I couldn't put it better myself. Awesome. Do you guys have any other specific questions? Because there's one other big topic that I want to hit before we let Mr. Williams go and do the things that principals do. Play Fortnite. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, educate the kids. Yeah, educate yeah. the kids. That's um, how it's done. <laughs> one of one of the big things, and I'll just start it off with the story because I like stories. So my my parents they've always been telling me about how you're supposed to interact with police especially after 9 11 because as soon as someone sees my name or my skin color or the way that i look um it's it's a different type of interaction i have to have my you know like my hands on the wheel i can't fool around can't raise my voice and in a lot of ways even though i don't understand the exact plight that one of my african-american brothers might be facing I do understand the fear of what that's like when you're in that situation. And my dad, he was in a meeting in Miami. Uh, They had a rental car. He was in a wrong lane. He's never been there. Cop pulls him over. And my dad, I mean, he cut like how many other lanes there were and just got straight to the shoulder. And he had his hands on the wheel. And like, then he realized, okay, maybe even that's not safe. So he threw his hands out the window. And just to show like, hey, I got nothing. And the cops started freaking out, started yelling at him. And it's, it's something that's always going to be iconic in my head, which was my dad told the officer, look, I'm more afraid of you than you are of me. And I think right now, more than any other time, that applies where there's so many people who look like George Floyd, who sound like George Floyd, who have went through you know the terrible terrible times uh that someone like brianna taylor and their family is facing there's so many different stories now that i just want to get your point of view out there of like the emotions that you felt when you hear those types of stories because i think hearing that is what ultimately brings things back home those emotions so if you could just share what your initial thoughts were, how you were feeling, what were some of those first thoughts that hit your head when you saw those headline news banners? Uh, Speaking as a black man, Harris, I would say uh, my emotions was, here we go again. Um, It'll be in in the, it'll be on the news for two or three days and then we'll be done and over with it. I think the only thing that, um, has been the catalyst for for this movement that's currently happening is with George Floyd, someone recorded it, and and there was no denying what happened in that in that um, situation. Um, I got pissed off, I got angry. Um, I even withdrew from my wife for a couple of hours or so because I didn't feel like she truly would be able to understand you know, what I was going through, what black people in this country were going through. Um, and I'll, I'll even be honest with you guys. Um, I even thought about going, going to buy a firearm. Like, you know, like if something happens, I want to be ready to protect my family. Um, just a lot of emotions. Like this morning I woke up and I was um, watching ESPN and 
I saw the video that the uh, NFL players had put out and I saw uh, the commissioner's response to that. And just thinking like, why does it have to take events like this, you know, to, to get people to wake up to see that, you know, there are injustices that are taking place around this country, not only to just black people, to, but to Latino people, to Pakistani people, to people of color. Why does it have to take something so bad to, to wake people up? Um, you can tell I'm still a little frustrated about it, but um, I was just pissed off, man. Excuse my, my language, but I was just pissed off. I think, like, I know for me, uh, 2020, I just think has been, for lack of better terms, has been an absolute shit show. Like, it's, it's yeah. uh, if you know Murphy's Law, like anything that could have went wrong pretty much has so far. And anybody that talks to me about how crappy the year is, I just tell them that there's like six to seven months left. So like strap in. Um, <laughs> but I, I know that I felt very similar in the sense that like, how many times are we going to watch it happen? How many times are, are we going to sit here and ask ourselves the question of like, how long are people going to care? Should we care? What should we do? What can be done? Who's listening? We shouldn't have to ask these questions anymore. And again, to bring it back to like why I spoke to Josh and moment about doing this is because I think when people see someone who is, can say that they're from a similar situation, that they've seen those things happen, that the emotions that you felt earlier on, you're telling, you know, that like we need to have hope but when someone is getting so battered down emotionally that the first thing is, man, it's happening again, people really need to understand the urgency of all of this, that this can't be a two or three day thing. This can't be a two week thing or two month thing. We really, really, really need to hook onto this and, and pay attention and do as much as we possibly can to give back to our communities and give back to the people in our communities, you know, to give shout outs to my two co-hosts today. I know Josh, like he's been looking at any way that he can donate, any way that he can give back. He's constantly telling me, you know, what type of different spots there are, what kind of organizations there are. Same with Momen. Momen's basically in the front lines. You know, he, one of his stores that's on Lake Street was one that got looted and he, he's seeing it happen live. And just, I think this was what, Thursday or Friday, he put up on his Facebook or Instagram that, hey, you guys can Venmo me from like this time, to this time, I'm going to run to Costco, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff. And then we're going to go and take it to whatever spot needs it. And whether it's donating money, whether it's you're there, and you can give back, whether you're Mr. Williams and myself that are just having a conversation trying to increase awareness, or whether you're just someone sitting at home, wondering what it is that you're supposed to do. This is a good first step. Understanding what's going on, understanding that there's people in pain, understanding that there is something you can do. We just want you to go ahead and do it now. That we don't want you to wait anymore. It, we've waited long enough. We don't need to hear stories about disrespect and pain anymore because we've all felt it now. So that's, that's kind of me on my soapbox. Um, and like how I felt about it. I'll let Josh and Momin share whatever thoughts they have, and then we can go ahead and conclude after that. Yeah, I, I agree, Harris. I mean, I, as work starts to ramp up, um, like Target starts to ramp up their, their diversity and inclusion calls, and you have a lot of leaders who are white and they've never had to have these conversations. I think like it's, it's for a lot of people, they're, they're gonna be flexing a muscle that they've never used. They're gonna be having conversations with people they've never wanted to have conversations with. And like, you're gonna have to have an awkward phase before, you, before it gets comfortable. And it may not ever get comfortable, but you have to acknowledge that and just recognize that like, hey, now is not the time to be quiet or silent. And I think that's why I gravitated so much to Harris's idea of doing this is because I know if we can distribute this to our close network, just the people that we know, that that's gonna have some type of impact to them. And then it's just gonna keep compounding their, with their network and their network. And 
Um, I can't say more that I can't say thanks enough to Mr. Williams for like sharing your perspective and uh, giving us your time and uh, your perspective because that means a lot. I mean, I think humanity is enriched when you interact with people who think differently than you. And I think for so long, people have been so, and even myself, so comfortable with people who think like you, who are look like you, who sound like you. Um, and I'm just thankful that like we can have conversations like this. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, they, they summed it up pretty well there. I mean, for me too, it just comes back to the importance of just educating yourself, not necessarily, not just in an academic sense, but being a citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. and, like understanding your part and role in it. And like I said, I just coming from a biracial background, I kind of became different to things and I'm realizing now that that's not okay. And trying to be more involved, like the importance of like just being more involved in your communities, like local like elections and voting and stuff like, um, just being involved in that regard, trying to make change as well. So trying to be an example in the, in your circle, but also trying to be an example for like people like the, like the youth coming up and stuff like that. And like having hope for a better future and by just trying to educate people now and things like that. But again, yeah, thanks for your time. And this has been really nice. Thank yeah, you the, guys. The very last thing I'll say here is uh, before I let moment shout out some uh, donation spots. Um, for people who are listening and for people who may be wondering how they can help. And it's, it can be overwhelming to think that, you know, having all these interactions with people you don't know or that you've never met, uh, trying to figure out how you can give back, it can feel like a lot. Just do one small thing. No one is asking you to be Superman or Superwoman. Just do one small thing. Even if you reach out to someone that you know is African American or from a different culture and you know they're struggling, you'd be surprised at how much sending someone a text and just telling them, hey, I'm with you. That in itself, is a huge step that for whatever reason, we as human beings for too long just didn't take. And there's no excuse for it now. We have Zoom, we have, everyone has phones, everybody has a means of communication. You don't have, have to be six feet apart, you can be a thousand feet apart. It doesn't take much to hit send. So please, please, please reach out to people, tell them that you're there for them and, and actually mean it, be genuine. And that in itself will be a great start. And continue um, that too, not just in moments like this where we see all the negativity, but like, you know, you can, you don't have to, you don't have to go like zero to 60, but you can, you can go one mile per hour and keep your foot on the gas kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, Moment, if you'll go ahead and uh, shout, I know that you were working with an organization. Um, so I want you to go ahead and shout them out and then we'll close it out. Yeah. Um the i mean just to echo your words if you have a thing that looks like this ignorance is no longer an excuse anymore I mean, you can't be ignorant right you have you have the world in your hand um but yeah i want to highlight two organizations so one is we love lakestreet.com or org um so they are a 501c3 that is working on the ground with a lot of the businesses that were burned down or looted or destroyed. Um, so Lake Street, just to give a background, historically is one of the most culturally and ethnically diverse streets in Minnesota. And it's made up of majority uh, minority business owners, African-Americans, Somalis, Mongs, uh, Mexican, Spanish backgrounds, uh, so many diverse backgrounds that it, it's been uh, completely destroyed. Um, you have uh, witnesses boarded up. You have the grocery stores feeding the community gone from there, and they're in a food desert. So this organization is working firsthand with the local business owners to assess the situation and give back 100% of everything that they fundraise to that to these business owners. And I, I had a conversation with the board a few days ago, um, and uh, I asked them like, hey, you've raised for almost $5 million so far. That's amazing. What is the total assessment for the damage that was caused? And she said very uh, carefully a billion dollars. So, I mean, these are people who entire livelihoods have been affected. Um, so that is a great place for donations. The second thing is gonna be Open Arms Minnesota. Uh, if you Google that organization, they are an organization that already has an existing network of donating meals, ready to make meals. Um, and uh, about 33% of their uh, members, uh, uh, the people who work with their staff service lives in Lake Street and in a Midway area in Minneapolis or in St. Paul that was affected with the riots. 
um, and they have already an established network of, don of, of giving and donating meals to people who need it. Um, so they're an organization that I really recommend as well. But in, in any regards, I think it's really important to think of your, your local communities and your locale and how do you make an impact with that first, um, whether it's through conversations, um, through dialogue, through volunteering. Money is not the only thing that can help. It is a very easy thing that can help, but not the only way you can support. Awesome. Uh, and we'll go ahead and we'll link these things uh, in the video, uh, either down in the description or some sort of comment spot um, so that you guys can uh, reach out and look for those spots. But again, I just want to thank you all for being here, Mr. Williams. Couldn't have done it without you. We really appreciate you being uh, our first guest to talk about this stuff. And, and that's it. We hate to see it.